we continue to lift up those fighting fires all along the West Coast and also praying for those who are um, affected by the hurricanes in the Gulf Coast. Um, things continue to be uh, kind of gloomy and our nation continues to suffer along with the rest of the world and even in our city, just the very things that are continuing to happen and there just doesn't seem to have a, a let up here. And I, I think that the book of Joel kind of hopefully helps us focus back into a very important question. And within this prophecy, if we boil it down, the essential question that Joel is asking is, are you saved? And it's actually the most important question ever. Now, a little bit about Joel. Um, not much is known about him other than that he's the son of Pethuel, which is found in Joel chapter 1, verse 1. And it reads, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Joel doesn't give us a timestamp of when he wrote this because there's no king mentioned to help us kind of go back historically to find that out. There's no contemporary prophet. Uh, there's just no way to identify when this was written. Biblical scholars can't agree on when Joel was born or when Joel was written. He just kind of appears. And, and he asked this most important question that anyone could ever ask. And a question that is really important for us, for all, all to, for all of us to answer, even though there isn't a specific date, it's, it's one for the ages. Are you saved? What we can gather from Joel is that it was written during a very challenging, very difficult, very harsh time. Let's read verses 2 through 4. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation what the cutting locust left, what the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So you can read here that there's this very, very serious plague of locusts, and locusts aren't anything new. In the Hebrew language, there are nine different nouns for locusts, and you could read from those verses all the different types of locusts there were. It's nothing unusual, and it's nothing unusual in languages. In, in our English language, there are a dozen words for snow, right? We say ice, icicle, hail, sleet, snowflake, whatever. You, that's just to, to name a few. It's just to say that locusts were very common and a swarm of locusts is very, very devastating to agriculture. It just ravages entire crops. They can number in the tens of billions as found in East African countries today. And in Northern Kenya, KQED reported a swarm back just this past June uh, that was reported to be 25 miles by 37 miles uh, wide. And so if you can just imagine what that is in the Bay Area, it's from Walnut Creek all the way down to San Francisco, down to Half Moon Bay, down to San Jose, and then back up to Walnut Creek again. That, that's the size. So 40 to 80 million locusts per half square mile. 
And we've read of locusts from the Bible, the plague of locusts, Exodus chapter 10, starting in verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land and all the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night when it was morning the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. A swarm of locusts just one square mile can consume as much food as would be eaten by 105,000 people a day. And so you look at how Joel describes them in verses 6, 7, 10 through 12, and 18. Let's just read those verses to get the picture of this devastation. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. The fields are destroyed. The grounds mourn because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And the gladness dries up from the children of men. Skip down to verse 18. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. Absolutely devastating. So how is this relevant to us? Other than this is happening in East Africa and destroying crops and people are suffering from famine. But what about us here? What is in this prophecy for us today? And, and here's the message for us. It's in verses 2 and 3, and this is what Joel writes. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all the inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Joel is asking the spiritual leaders, the, the leaders, people, if we have learned the lessons from the disaster, to tell generations after us these lessons and it's not lessons about locusts but to tell people about the lessons of God when they were in a time of desperate need when what they were relying on has been completely wiped out and that is the practical application of Joel and maybe this is why Joel doesn't have a date corresponding to it because it's this timeless lesson to be applied in our own moments of hardship, need, difficulty, challenge. Whenever we find ourselves perplexed by what's going on around us, like it is today with disease and social unrest, natural disasters, all these things that are wreaking havoc to people's lives and, and all the things that people are accustomed to leaning on, such as their finances, family, friends, employment, recreation, hobbies, fun things, all the things that people come to depend on 
schooling, gone. And Joel points us to the Lord. Now jump down to verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Destruction, devastation, these aren't meaningless for the Christian. It serves as a warning, a warning signal to, to live life in light of God's timetable, the day of the Lord, to live life knowing that it ends on this earth and that it carries on into everlasting with God, that what we live and how we live now, we need to make this time count to live life well to the glory of God. That's what the parable of the kingdoms are, aren't they? All those parables of the kingdom found in Matthew chapter 13 are lessons on how to live our lives here, right now, and make it count for eternity. And are we learning these lessons? We, we don't have time to run through all those parables in Matthew 13. So I encourage you to read them in your small groups or study them on your own. I gave you the reference for you to do that, so... So do that and read that and, and, and listen to what God is saying. Listen to what the Spirit is saying through those parables to you. Let's get back to Joel. Joel is pointing out where we place our trust. What are we loyal to right now? Which is telling to what we are loyal to in everlasting life. What are we placing our confidence on right now? Which is what tells us what we trust for everlasting? Is it God in whom we trust or is it something else? Whatever we place our security in, if it's other than God, it'll burn. It will be no more. Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Nothing will stand the test of time other than God. All that we've put our trust in to sustain us will show to be worthless in times of calamity. It's in God's mercy that, that shows us that He's there with us in the moment and to show us that He is with us for everlasting. Whatever we've put our security into, its worthiness as our security is, is tested in those times of disaster. Whether it's in, in a job, money, relationships, the, the disasters point out that, you know, God is the only one that is eternal. Everything, everyone, disappears. And there's nothing or, or no one to place our eternal trust in other than God. Only God can give us what is eternal. Even the wonderful gifts God has given us are temporary. 
only he is eternal. So what, what does Joel tell us? He's telling us a lot. Take a look at these action verses. Verse 5, awake. Verse 8, lament. Verse 11, be ashamed and wail. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament. Wail. Verse 14, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather and cry out to the Lord. This is the word of God to give us a, a, a sense of what we put our trust in today and for everlasting. And so let's take a look at verse 5 a little bit more closely. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Wake up! We need an awakening. We need to awaken from our spiritual slumber. And there are two groups addressed here. One is drunkards and, and drinkers. Now the issue here isn't about alcohol. You can apply this to any addiction, any dependence, any bondage that, that drunkards are, are consumed with alcohol just as others can be consumed with sex, drugs, eating, gambling, whatever. You plug it in there. People who are enslaved to something that provides them an escape from the realities of life. And then Joel addressed the drinkers of wine. And these, these are people who like wine. They're, they're not drunkards, but they're enthusiasts. They, they live life for pleasure. They're these pleasure seekers. They're not addicted to it, but, but they really like their pleasures. And you can think of these sorts of things like alcohol or influence, money, sports, power, those things that people like. It's just pleasure. And they, they can be addictions, but, but what, what would fall under addiction would be that first group. These are more those pleasure seekers and those who partake in those things. People who are under that spell of pleasure, but not completely consumed by it. It's easier to spot out an addict versus a pleasure seeker, isn't it? You can spot them out easier. Now, how do you know one of these drinkers of wine, one of these pleasure seekers? Because those are the harder ones to, to spot out. One way to see if we're under a spell of pleasure is, is to note one's reaction when someone challenges us to give it up. Like the rich man in Mark chapter 10. Let's turn to that story, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher! What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possession. Perhaps not addicted to money, maybe he was, but at the very least falling under this category of drinker of wine. That it had some hold on him that he couldn't give up. It had this hypnotic, tranquilizing 
narcotic effect on his life, and he, he wouldn't awaken from it. He wouldn't wake up from that slumber. What do you trust in it, as addressed in drunkenness? And where do you find your greatest pleasure as addressed in drinkers of wine? Is your trust greatest in the Lord? Is your greatest pleasure in the Lord? And those are these great questions of importance to test our relationship with God. Really simple questions, but overwhelmingly honest to expose where we are with God. What we're addicted to is more obvious than what is pleasurable to us. And here's something that you can do for yourself is, is list your addictions. And one of the challenges of doing that is the denial of addiction. But you can list your addictions and then on another column list your pleasures. And that one is probably going to be a lot longer. List all the things that give you pleasure. Where does living your life for the pleasure of the Lord fit in that whole list of pleasures? What gives you the greatest pleasure? Joel is pointing out how we are to find our everlasting pleasures in the Lord, and it starts by waking up. Wake up. Now this list, if, if you write out this list, it, it can help by pointing out if there are things that are in front of God. These locusts back in Joel's day, these trials in our day, our opportunities, our warning signals as an alarm to wake us up. So the first thing he tells us is to wake up, awake. And then he says lament. Verse 8. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. And then he goes on and he describes these locusts again, what they've done. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest mourns, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. And so do you have this picture in your mind about lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for a bridegroom of her youth? And it's probably a little harder to imagine what this looks like over 2,000 years ago. But if you can, if you can put yourself in her pain and empathize and put yourself in her sorrow, and if you can't, maybe you can modernize it into contemporary times where it's this engaged couple who has already taken their engagement photos and they've already sent out all the invitations They've reserved the vendors and the locations of their celebrations. They've reserved everything for their honeymoon. The wedding gown has been purchased. The rings have been purchased. And I think a lot of you can empathize with this because this whole COVID thing has thrown your wedding celebrations for a loop where you've had to cancel a bunch of things or you've lost a lot of money on a lot of things. And But here's maybe something that hasn't happened to you, and hopefully it hasn't. It's really tragic. The bridegroom dies on his way to the wedding ceremony. So all the dreams that they had together to live life until death do they part, all the companionship that they thought of, of being together as best friends and the security that they had 
knowing that they had each other's backs and the talks of having children and the future imagined just completely altered. From wearing a wedding gown to wearing sackcloth. Celebration in one moment to lament the next moment. And that trajectory of life just completely altered. Hop down to verse 13, since that is also speaking of lament. And then we'll go back to verse 11. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. That one is speaking to priests, ministers, speaking to grain and drink offerings withheld from the house of God. This is speaking of Jerusalem. It's speaking of city centers. People who think that they can't be affected because, you know, we're in the big city. We were, this, is, this is where the temple is. This is God's presence is in that building. That those devastating types of things, you know, those only happen way out there. Those agricultural areas, those rural areas, those locusts, and those, they can't affect us here. Because food comes here from everywhere. And here, I'm always going to have a job. Look at all the people here. Look at all the people I get to service, and I'm never going to be jobless. There's always going to be stable housing markets around here. We won't be affected where we're at, because this is the big city. Oh, how we know that this is not true, especially in our time. Look at what COVID has done to New York City. Look at what COVID has done to San Francisco. Financial capital of the East Coast, financial capital of the West Coast. What is happening? We're weak, just like everyone else. It's not just the rural areas. And it's times like these that point to how our self-reliance is so weak because we are self-reliant and it's all being exposed. That big cities fall. Look at history. Look at the biggest cities of history and, and they're nothing now. Whether you look at the fall of Pompeii or Machu Picchu or Troy, you can think of these grand cities of world history. There's no security in big cities. The locusts, the, the disasters of our day can devastate the countryside just as they can devastate cities. What do we put our trust in? Where do we place our confidence? Is it in government? Is it in people in power? If it's in anywhere other than the Lord, lament, wail, Plead to the Lord for mercy. Now back to verses 11 and 12. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the baked barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. Tillers, vine dressers. This is speaking to people whose lives are just consumed with work. They, they work all the time. People who work day and night, and their identity is in their job. What they devote their life to, 
what they place their trust in. It's in their job. They derive pleasure in what their work can provide over what the Lord provides. And the locusts proves that no matter how hard they work, it can amount to nothing. And it's so much like the disasters of our time. I just, I can't believe how relevant Joel is in telling us these things when we devote so much time and our effort and our energy into work and now so many people. 22 million jobs lost since coronavirus. Since this COVID crisis. 22 million. And about 40% of that has recovered now. But some of those jobs are never coming back. So much of one's dignity tied up to their work. And now many are ashamed. They are wailing. I have extended family members who have not told their immediate families of their layoff because they're ashamed. And the family will eventually find out. The, the pretending of the leaving of the house, that, that won't work forever. And working so hard in the same industry for over 25 years and then to show for it now is nothing. Like the farmer who works so hard and, and, and it's all gone in a matter of minutes from the locusts. Lament. In verse 8, it's the person who places their trust in family. Whose family do you belong to? Is it the Lord's? Or are you just placing all your trust in your nuclear family or your extended family? Who perish? Verse 11, it's the person who places their trust in their job. So who are you working for? Are, Are you about... The Lord's work. In verse 13, it's the person who places their trust in government, in cities, in power. Where is your trust? Is it in the power of the Lord? If these things are not of the Lord, you need to wake up, lament, wail. Our eternal security is to be in God, not in the degrees that we have or the work or or what we do, our citizenship, not even in our family, our everlasting security is in the Lord. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. What are we building our lives on? Sand or rock? What is the foundation of our life? Is it Jesus Christ our rock? All other ground is sinking sand. Verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. 
Is not the food cut off before your eyes, joy and gladness from the house of your God? The seed shrivels under the clouds. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. Priests, ministers are told to put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. Why? Verse 16. Joy and gladness are cut off from the house of God. See, the real disaster is not the physical locusts. The real disaster is from the spiritual locusts who have eaten away at our spirit, our mind, our soul, our heart, that the joy and the gladness are gone. I'm really concerned for the church because we tend to look at those physical locusts. And whether it be natural disasters, whether it be COVID, whether it be political unrest, whether it be racism, whether it be whatever it may be that's going on, I am really concerned. I'm concerned because I think sometimes our focus gets put away and we don't address the spiritual locusts that are happening how many of you are okay with virtual church now? It's been so long. Now, I know this is really difficult to gauge. It's, it's difficult to gauge the eagerness or the enthusiasm for worship when we're not face-to-face. Uh, but in the limited interactions I've had with people, some are really ready to get back together. They, they, they can't wait. They're really eager. They're excited. They're enthusiastic. But I have to share with you, and it's sad to say, most people I've interacted with, they're not all that excited to get back together. Most people I've interacted with like being able to pull up any service they want to from anywhere in the world. And, and then take a look at different options and hop around and and look at different churches. And Joel addresses the leaders of the church. How are we as leaders? What are we to do? Verses 19 and 20. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flames have burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. What are we as leaders to do? To you, O Lord, I call. Joel wrote this to us. This is the prophet of Pentecost. Do you realize this? This is, this is what changes the church. Joel is the prophet that Peter quoted in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Look, look at what they were crying out in Acts chapter 2 verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And it's just like the people in Joel's day who, who wondered, what they were to do, and Joel's like, call out to the Lord. I'm concerned for the church 
Because are we calling out to the Lord? Or are we kind of comfortable in a unwakened, hibernating state because we've been in this kind of lull for months? And so this is what Peter quoted from Joel chapter 2 from his message on Pentecost. And part of this quote is from Joel chapter 2 verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. It's the most important question ever asked. Are you saved? We had baptisms, uh, and we'll show you clips of this in the following weeks of, of people getting baptized, but it was so good to be together, to worship together, to see each other face to face, to hear testimonies, to hear of how God changed people's lives. I hope they're going to be really encouraging to you. But just to hear that God is still at work in people. And these warning signs that are all over us right now. They are to point us back to God. To, to flash this question before us. Do you trust in Christ over everything else? Everything. Will you call on the name of the Lord? And whenever we, we get these signs, even these really devastating signs, these are signaling to us to redirect ourselves to God. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, awaken your church. Some of us have been asleep. Some have just been still busy at it, Lord. Sharing your name, bringing people to you. I am concerned, God. I am concerned. And for all these things that are happening, Lord, may they not just be physical locusts, Lord, where we just focus on those disasters, but may we, Lord, look at the spiritual locust inside of our heart. That we would address those things, that we would lament over those things and wail and turn back to you, calling upon your name. Thank you for your prophet Joel, Lord. I pray that our church is redirected in a way to focus our gaze upon you. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you have uh, your communion elements, let's bring those out. Let's partake of that together. The bread as you break a piece of bread off, symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. How costly the sacrifice. And yet, if your alarm is going off, don't press snooze anymore, don't reset it. Wake up. Wake up. And use this moment to turn to the Lord and perhaps there is a time of lament that is needed, a time of, of wailing that is needed. And every week we're taking of communion. Just an awesome reminder 
to redirect our gaze towards Jesus. Let's take this in his name. The fruit of the vine. The blood of Christ spilled for us. Where all sin is forgiven because he has covered it completely. Let's take this in remembrance of that and the remembrance of his promise that he is coming back for us. Lord Jesus, we await your return. But in the meantime, Lord, may we be busy going about directing people to call upon your name for their own salvation in Jesus' name. Amen.